Uh, so today, uh, we have a difficult person to talk about today, uh, Mary Tudor, otherwise known as Bloody Mary. So uh, that's going to be our topic today, and uh, we have a lot of ground to cover with her, and uh, hopefully some lessons to be learned. So let's open up with a word of prayer and we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful to you for your goodness to us, for the way you have prepared uh, a way for us through your Son. We thank you that as imperfect as we are and as complicated as history is because of our choices and the, and sin in the world, you have still provided for us like a father, and you have given us what we need to persevere, Lord. So we pray for continued uh, strength, and pray, Lord, that we even uh, learn something important today from, uh, from the history of your providence, and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Well, I got to say, uh, learning, um, <laughs> refreshing myself and going a little deeper into who uh, Mary Tudor was uh, is kind of a, leaves you in a dark place. <laughs> um, because it's, uh, you know, sin, sin doesn't leave anyone uh, in victory. Um, it destroys everything. Even the people that you think hold power over you as they sin, uh, even in government, we have a good example of what that is like, where very, very wicked people seem to be running things and it seems unjust. And sometimes it seems unjust because we think that they're in victory. <laughs> and... Um, Sin doesn't leave anyone uh, satisfied, victorious, uh, or in any way, um, if I can put it this way, happy. I always say that uh, Satan is a covenant maker. He loves making covenants with people. He just never keeps any of it. Um, he tells you that this sin will be the sin that does it for you. You will be satisfied. I promise. I, you know, and he, and he convinces us that this time this sin will satisfy us. It will do, do it for us. And then when it doesn't, he says, well, look, there, this next thing. And like fools, we keep covenanting with Satan. But we have a God who's a covenant keeper. And even though there are times where it seems as though evil is triumphing in the world, there is no triumph of evil. There is no satisfaction, no happiness. The people that rule and persecute Christians, uh, even throughout history, um, at no point were they... Um, Were they victorious? Were they happy? Were they um, truly in command? There is always justice. I say all that because as we talk about 
uh, Mary Tudor, our Bloody Mary. It all begins uh, back with uh, Henry VIII. And uh, Henry VIII was an interesting guy, I'll tell you. I, I don't want to get all political, but he does remind me a lot of Trump. And I'll tell you why. And I don't mean that bad towards any position anyone likes around here. But it's just, he was one of those guys that wanted to do what he wanted to do. And if there was someone in his way, he just, it just wouldn't, it didn't matter. Even if it was the Catholic Church. And so he wanted to get rid of his wife, Catherine. Um, there were many reasons for that, uh, one of which uh, was that it wasn't a marriage that Henry, uh, it's not like Henry was in love with this woman or anything like that. And I know for us in, as Americans, we think of those things. Back then, people didn't really think that way. They thought, this, this is an alliance and things like that. But Henry VIII, he was romantic, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, and he, he wanted, he just wanted and wanted and wanted. But with, uh, with Catherine, he did have a, he had, he had Mary. As you know the story, he got rid of Catherine by divorcing her, had to almost create a completely different uh, uh, religion to do it, uh, but uh, he got rid of her. And when, you, when the king divorces you, uh, I guess it was, he tried to make it an annulment for a long time, but at that point, at the point of separation, even the children become illegitimate children, no longer able to succeed to the throne. And so even Parliament saw Mary and Elizabeth as illegitimate children. And so, I want you to think about that. Mary grew up uh, watching her mother suffer under a man who couldn't control his lusts, watching the Catholic Church that, was, uh, that had the right principles that would have saved her mother from this humiliation, uh, and this man mowing over that religion to get what he wants. Um, and she was kind of in constant disappointment, if I can put it that way. At the same time, see, there's a lot of complexities to the English Reformation. Uh, was Henry VIII uh, in his private life quite terrible? Yes. But he really did help out the Reformation quite a bit because he had a friend, Cramner. Cramner was a friend of Henry VIII. Cramner was someone that was trying to push the Protestant Reformation forward but, and was someone that was high up in the ranks um, of the church at that time because of Henry VIII. And at one point, the Catholics tried to take Cramner down and by doing that, they said, uh, Cramner's guilty of all these, all these heresies and all this sort of stuff, and we need to destroy him. Uh, he needs to be burnt at the stake. And so Henry had Cramner investigated uh, by Cramner. So he went to Cramner and he says, you have been, you know, these people are bringing up these charges. I want you to investigate yourself and see if you're guilty. And it turned out Cramner found himself innocent. So, 
And that's the kind of relationship they had. And it didn't make a lot of sense because Henry really was someone that wanted Catholicism to stay, just didn't like the parts that kept him from his lusts. So, uh, so Cramner was able to even develop this thing called the uh, Book of Common Prayer. Uh, later on, uh, in a few weeks, we'll learn about John Knox, how uh, John, John Knox got that book, uh, got a second edition of that book uh, made because of his influence to make it even more Protestant. But uh, all that is to say that uh, the Protestant Reformation was moved forward through very strange ways. Uh, it wasn't the straightforward, everyone caught on to the, you know, what it means, you know, what sola scriptura and sola gratia and all that sort of thing really meant and it just, everyone just liked it. Um, there was a lot of weird politics. It really does even remind me of today. Um, uh, everything wasn't so cut and dry, but there was this, there was this new group uh, that was beginning to start. Uh, it, was, it was led by a guy, guy named John Hooper, who used to be a monk, and I, and I know this all seems like, when are we going to talk about Bloody Mary? We'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll get there. There's this all kinds of stuff that has to be understood first. So this guy named John Hooper used to be a monk, and he, sa- he had this idea that um, the, the Catholic Church, one of the sins of the Catholic Church, is putting humans between us and God. So if you wanted to confess your sins, you had to go to the priest. Uh, you had to pay money. You had to, there's all these different things you had to do in order to have your sins uh, forgiven and even have access to God. You still needed the priest through the sacraments. Otherwise, you didn't really have true access to God. And the church was the gateway. You couldn't get to God except through the church. It was kind of a brilliant move um, by the church because it kind of makes the church, uh, you have to come. I mean, if you're going to talk to God, if you're going to have real access to God, you got to be here. And, uh, and when people show up, they give, and they, you know, they give their money, and if they give their money, then everything's going great. And I'm, not, I'm not saying it's even that simple. I mean, you know, look what happens you know, when church becomes casual, then our attendance becomes casual, right? So it's not, I mean, not everything is as black and white as it looks, but this guy named John Hooper said, we are saints. And we, um, we, need, we are able, and this is something he learned from the Reformation, we are able to have access to God directly. We can go directly to God uh, through Christ, and because we can go directly to God through Christ, uh, we should be able to uh, have a church that allows this kind of thing. And so he was really uh, into, the, into this movement of getting rid of things in the church that demonstrated this distance between the congregation and God. One of them was vestments. Uh, when, the men, when the priests wore these robes and all this sort of stuff, these vestments were to demonstrate, if you're going to get to God, you have to come through the one wearing the robe first. Uh, having the altar uh, behind the priest, where the priest had to turn his back to the, to the congregation because now he was doing business with God for their sake. Right? And, so, and even holding up the bread re-crucifying Christ with the bread. 
all these different movements were designed to show you're here, I'm doing business directly with God, and you need me to get there. And so they wanted to get rid of having the altar there, they wanted to get rid of the vestments, which is kind of ironic because there's some Reformed churches that still like vestments very much, which is fine, it's not a big deal. Um, but, uh, but this man, Hooper, really wanted to push that idea that we have direct access to God. Um, and he even suffered for it. I mean, he was put in jail, and, um, and even John Calvin said to him, hey, it's not that big of a deal, just wear the vestments and, you know, then... You can say what you want. No one's saying you can't say what you want. But he, was, he ended up in prison because he wouldn't wear the vestments. And even Calvin was saying, you know, this, is a, you know, this isn't that big of a deal. And uh, he says, yes, it is. And so finally, um, when Edward VI came around after the death of Henry VIII, he was released and able to preach without his vestments. And this movement was soon called uh, the Puritan Movement. And so Hooper was one of the first people to, uh, to start this movement that the Puritans uh, um, started, and it was this idea that we are the, the, the priesthood of believers, that we, we are able to have direct access to God, a very important part of the Reformation, which was something that, uh, that Calvin thought was very important. He just thought, you know, if it, if it comes down to wearing a robe and going to prison, uh, wear the robe. But uh, Hooper would do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> As Calvin was known for, his, his great compromises. Um, and so, uh, now that's important because there's this other guy. Uh, once, once Henry VIII died, his son Edward, uh, Edward VI became king. He was a sickly guy, but he had the personality of his father. And he, was, he believed in the Protestant Reformation. He believed this needs to move forward. And uh, Edward VI was a great hope for the, for the Reformation in England. The only problem was, everyone knew he was going to die. Uh, he was a sickly guy. But what was interesting was, uh, one of the things I kind of assumed, what, you know, and this is maybe a bad assumption, I thought, well, because he was sickly, he was probably a weak, a weak guy, but he was actually uh, known to be very strong and bullheaded like Henry VIII, except for Protestant instead of Catholic. So it was kind of interesting. Um, he knew he was going to die soon, and so he had to make some plans. But before that, he was putting Puritans in positions of power, um, including a Puritan named Ridley, who... Uh, who had compassion on Edward's sister, uh, Mary. Mary was still a very staunch Catholic. Um, she had watched her mother be humiliated, watched her mother become this, this outcast, as the king has commanded. And then she became an outcast, and so Catholicism was that which gave her her comfort. Uh, and Ridley was one, of the, was one of the Puritans and was very strong in the Puritan movement, but he was a very tolerant man. And he felt that Mary should be allowed to worship as she wished to worship. She wanted to worship in the way the Catholics worshipped. She should be allowed. And because of Ridley, 
Uh, she did not have to go to Protestant churches. She was allowed to go to Catholic worship and go to Mass. Now that's interesting. I want you to remember that she was going to be forced to go to a Protestant church, but Ridley was the one that had compassion on her and said, let her worship the way she wants, and it was determined she could. Um, it wasn't something the king cared much about because uh, Edward VI kind of didn't even really consider her his real sister because she was illegitimate. The fact that she was Catholic was another thing that Edward was concerned about. Even though um, Elizabeth was um, favorable toward Protestantism, he still didn't consider Elizabeth as a successor either. So he tried to make this weird maneuver where he tried to make um, a woman named Lady Jane Grey, which was uh, the daughter of Henry's younger sister, uh, the successor. Um, he thought, uh, Edward VI thought, I am the king, and therefore who I claim is going to be the successor will be the successor and everyone will like it. Remember, he had the kind of the mind of Henry, or the the strength of Henry, if I can put it that way, but, um, but a Protestant, like I said before. So, uh, he dies. And Lady Jane Grey is named, um, is named Queen. Um, and he really thought everyone would accept that because that was what he said. And the Protestant men that were with Edward VI, that were his counselors, and, and this is the danger of becoming, you know, attaching yourself to a king, especially one that's going to die soon, is who's coming next, right? In the Baptist world, this was a big deal when, when a pastor leaves and a new pastor comes and all the assistant pastors are wondering what's going to happen to us, because <laughs> usually they get fired and they move on and the new pastor hires new people. Have, have anyone been to a Baptist church? You're all looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, yeah, all right. So, I mean, that doesn't happen quite as much in, in our world because of the way we structure things. But, but that was, you know, think of that on steroids. It's not that you'll just lose your job. It's that you can get your head cut off or burnt alive at a stake if the next person doesn't like what you've been doing. And it was very probable. Everyone was putting their bets on... Lady Jane Grey, and thinking, well, the king has said this is the one. Lady Jane Grey uh, even um, uh, married uh, a Protestant nobleman uh, tied to a guy that, um, well, this guy's, she married the son of this guy that, and I forgot his name, but he was one of those guys that was trying to get everyone on board, and his personality probably wasn't the greatest. And so everyone was kind of, shocked. I, you know, it wasn't that they didn't have information like we do today. Like if the king was considering Lady Jane Grey today before his death, everyone would know about it instantaneously. Uh, CNN would, you know, would probably talk about it in this really negative light and Fox News would be celebrating Lady I don't know, whatever it is. Um, we would know instantly, right? Uh, it would leak and probably the kingdom would you know, probably have it leak on purpose just to see how everyone felt. Um, but back then, people didn't have information like that. So, you know, a lot of people, when Lady Jane Grey was named, they were like, oh, well, what's this? This is weird. 
why wouldn't it be one of his sisters? And everyone knew that, that the parliament had already said the two sisters were, were illegitimate, but they, they, they were a lot uh, closer related than this cousin that now is going to be queen. It just was so strange. And so that, along with um, Mary, um, you have to remember, uh, so uh, the 10th of July, 1553, Lady Jane Grey was declared queen. That same day, Mary had written a letter to, um, to the nobleman in, in London to say, hey, I have been, I've been treated poorly and my, my mom has been treated poorly, and she's the one who really is the queen. And if, if, you, if you bring me back, I will bring order and put everything back to what it was supposed to be. This appealed to them. The, later, the letter arrived in London, in London the same day that Lady Jane Grey was declared queen, and two days later, Mary had gathered a military presence already. People had started to move. And remember, this isn't, you know, the truth of Christianity, Protestantism, and Catholicism. That was kind of interesting to people, but it was more interesting on, how, on which side could get you what you needed, right? It was a lot like America. I mean, we, I mean if, you, if we think that, the, that you know, uh, politicians are sincere about their beliefs about God, I just, I don't know. I have a little jaded by that. But, um, you know, I'm sure there are some. Uh, but this, is, this was really that way. I mean, they were thinking, okay, is the Reformation really pushing forward? Or did it seem like, and this is what a lot of people believe, that it seemed like it was being pushed on the people. And so the people, you have to understand, these aren't pe- uh, the people in the, in the kingdom uh, are not educated the way we are today. We don't, they didn't have cell phones that could bring up uh, a bunch of commentaries. In fact, commentaries weren't even around back then. So, and, and back then, the church told you what to believe, right? And, uh, and you didn't have, a lot of them didn't have even access to the Bible itself or could read it. So it was a lot like America. <laughs> I could put it that way. Um, and so everyone is thinking, how can I use, you know, our position to get what we need? And we oftentimes think, especially as Americans, well, back then the people had no, had, had no say. It was just whatever the, whatever the monarch said, they were slaves to the monarch's decrees. But it wasn't that way. The monarchs were very concerned about what the people thought. They were concerned about uh, rebellions that would pop up if they, if they taxed too much or if they pushed too hard on something. Henry VIII was one of the few people that didn't care about that, and it almost made the whole kingdom broke. In fact, it did make them broke. That was one of the issues. Uh, one of the issues was that not only were was all these people not sure what to believe, this new Protestant thing was being pushed on them, and it's not what they were used to. They didn't understand why this theology is so important that we would change everything. And then everyone's broke uh, because of Henry VIII. And who's going to come and help us you know, not be broke anymore? Right? Sound familiar? 
so, um, two day, so it was just two days after, after Lady Jane Grey was declared queen, Mary had gathered this military presence of people that thought if we get Mary in there, everything will go back to the way it was supposed to be. Everyone will be eating again and throwing money at each other in the streets. It'll be wonderful. So nine days later, nine days, the 19th of July, 1553, Mary takes the throne. Uh, there is support all across England, not because they cared about religion, but they just thought this, she's going to fix everything. Everything was all out of whack. We were having to do these new things in church I didn't understand. And now, and now we're poor, and this woman's going to help us. Lady Jane Grey was imprisoned and, of course, beheaded because uh, um, Mary understood that you don't leave people alive um, in this world. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, leaving your enemies alive was very dangerous back then because then they could raise support while they're suffering in prison, and then you have rebellions again. Once they're dead, uh, people usually forget about them in a week. Uh, again, <laughs> a lot like America, right? I mean, you can, as a president, you can make a decision that, that uh, brings the death of 13 uh, Marines, and within a week, people have forgotten all about it because they're worried about vaccinations, right? I mean, that's America. And it reminds me a lot of this uh, England thing. So, Mary begins to reign. Okay. You have to remember, this is a woman that felt like she was, being, she was being forgotten and pushed away. And her mother was humiliated, and now she's back, baby. Right? She's in charge, and she can make everything the way it was supposed to be. And so she is, she is ridding all the Protestant, anyone that was even sympathetic to the Protestants, out of the kingdom... Uh, well, actually, sending them all to heaven. <laughs> um, so, um, so everything was, um, because of his extravagant life, uh, or Henry's extravagant life, you had this extreme poverty that Mary was going to fix. And you had a lot of monks who were scattered all over the place because of the Reformation that lost their power, that were suddenly back in power, telling everyone, isn't this great? Isn't this great? So where do people go to get their news back uh, during the English Reformation? You go to church. That's where your news is. Uh, the guy up front has connections to London. And he knows what's going on because, you know, the, the church spreads all the information to all the bishops and then all the priests and all that cycle starts going through, and so you get to church because you want to know what's happening out there. And they'll tell you. And so they'll tell you how you're supposed to feel about it, right? Um, you know, we, <laughs> they had cable access even back then, where not only did they tell you the news, they told you how you're supposed to, you know, what you're supposed to think about the news. So... Um, so Mary wants to try and create a connection that will make her kingdom stronger, which is what she believes would, would, would happen if she married someone from Spain. So she, um, her, uh, 
what is it, her cousin or her uncle? I think it's her uncle. Um, is Charles V, and uh, she marries his son Philip. And, um, and this was very controversial. So her marrying someone from Spain, okay? This was very controversial because the people did not like that. They felt, okay, so now Spain's going to tell us what to do because Spain was so involved with the Catholic Church that had a lot of power with the Pope, and they felt, okay, so now we're going back to the things we didn't like about the old days. So they're, they're very uh, suspicious about Philip. So before Philip could even marry Mary, um, they had, he had to agree that he would have no power. He would, he would not be on the next on the throne. Uh, he would not be able to have any influence. He would, be, he would be basically a growth on the side of her arm. That's it. Um, no power, nothing. And, he, and they agreed to it. They were fine with that. Um, but you have to understand, so the people saw this as a problem. Okay? They saw this as, we're supposed to, as England, they were tired of being weak. right? When you don't have a lot of money, you become weak out there. And they wanted to be strong, and they felt this was weakening them again. Now what's, what's interesting is that Mary really liked Philip. I mean, on a personal level. She was attracted to him. She thought that he was, a, he was one of those powerful men who were manly men, and she liked that. Wasn't like all the uh, wimpy men that she was, um, that was around her when you're a queen, everyone, especially when you're like her, uh, you know, you want to tell her what she wants to hear, but he was different. He, on the other hand, did not like her so much. Um, I, don't, I think probably some of it was he, he may not have felt attracted to her. Um, she, she was known as someone that was, had the, when she was younger, she had all the traits that you would think when she grows up, she's going to be a very beautiful woman. And she might have been, but there was a lot of problems. She had a stroke when she was young, which kind of left her uh, face a little strange. Um, and you see, back then, they, they didn't have the uh, medical understanding to, to describe that well, but they said she had dark, her face became, uh, had dark features and became kind of plain uh, because of that. And her bitterness, uh, that always ages someone. And so she may not have been very attractive to him, after two years of being in England with her, he found an excuse to get out of Dodge and he went back to Spain uh, to uh, run some of the military uh, there, something he did not have to do but suddenly became very burdened to do. So, um, so why do people call her Bloody Mary? She was determined to strike down all the leaders of the Reformation that Edward had around him. And so she started with Cramner, had him, had him killed. Well, first he, they had him uh, rec recant all his beliefs, and he did. He signed uh, the paper that recanted so he could have a quick death instead of a slow death, and then he went back and said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have recanted, and he recanted of his rec recantation and said, I shouldn't have done that, um, I need to die the right way. And so he was burned to death, and the, the story is that the hand he used to sign that recantation, he put in the 
fire first, uh, to, let that, uh, to let the hand that did that burn first. Another person she burned was Ridley. Remember him? The one that was kind to her and let her worship as she wished. He, uh, she burnt him alive. Hooper, uh, remember the first, the proto-Puritan guy? Burnt him. In fact, by the time she was done, it was estimated that she had uh, killed 283 Protestants and suspected uh, Protestant sympathizers, uh, mostly burned them alive. Uh, And you have to understand how this wasn't something that people were actually used to, and it was like, oh, well, you know, we live in a time where burning people alive is quite normal. They did not feel it was normal. It was very brutal. Um, They did... Um, it was something that was done, but it wasn't something that was done often, certainly not 283 times. Um, and those were the ones that she had direct relationship with. There were people that were killed all over the place with her blessing, but not directly from the kingdom. So it's way more than just 283. Th- those were just the ones that she had direct, she signed her name on. Um, and burning alive was... Uh, as gruesome as you would think. In fact, uh, Mary would oftentimes, uh, she had to make it illegal for people to add something to the fire to make it burn faster. Uh, she wanted them to burn from the ankles up, uh, slowly and painfully. Um, some people would pay extra money to have a pouch put around their neck of gunpowder so they could dip their, their neck into the fire and it would explode and kill them. Uh, usually, faster that way, and it was a mercy. You had to pay money to get those. So if you wanted to die that way, uh, you were probably giving away your family's life savings to get that around your neck. There are stories of men who uh, were burnt alive on uh, damp days, which in England is almost every day, but on a damp day, uh, especially if there was a drizzle, the fire would not burn. It took some people up to two, uh, two days to burn alive, to finally die, because they couldn't keep the fire going uh, hot enough. So this is not... And, and the people watched this. And as the people watched, they saw men who were highly educated, um, who they thought were just doing the... Reform, were part of this Reformation thing for political reasons, and then sees that they're singing and praising God as they burn to death. Which began to change the minds of England uh, against Mary. Uh, it's a fascinating thing when you, when you start studying this, you, you realize that what, what made England such a bulwark of the Reformation were the burning bodies of God's people. And the testimony that was to England. It, you know, they were going, you have to understand, every Sunday they're going in and relying on this priest to tell them what to believe. And ev- so they had him at least once a week indoctrinating, indoctrinating, indoctrinating the Catholic Church is the right way. These Reformation people are just a bunch of uh, rebel- rebellious, horrible human beings who just want the worst for you, they're deplorables, whatever it is, and, and you, uh, we're saving you. And they're hearing this doctrine every Sunday. But what do they believe? 
They believe the hymns being sung by men that are burning to death. That's what they believe. The testimony of these men that they thought might have been just there for political reasons are serious about all this. You really can talk directly to God. You really can rely on God's word. Um, and and it, the proof is that even as they're burning to death, they are singing hymns to God, praising God. They watch people burn for a day, two days, and someone's willing to do that instead of going back on what they believe. That is what meant something to the English people. And like I said at the beginning, um, sin never lets you enjoy anything. There's always the promise that you're going to enjoy it. There's always a promise that there's going to be some kind of fulfillment. But it's never there. Um, we see that all the way, all, all through. I mean, just look at Hollywood and you can understand it. But um, one of the things that Mary wanted more than anything was an heir to the throne. She wanted to be pregnant so bad. Um, in September of 1554, she started showing signs of pregnancy. Um, she, missed, she missed her cycle, um, her stomach began to swell, uh, and, and it looked like Mary was going to have a baby. A year later, the baby still wasn't there. Um, the swelling went down, and it looked like it wasn't even a miscarriage, that it might have been a false pregnancy, something that uh, psychologically, someone wants something so badly that their body actually responds to it in a certain way. And she said, well, this is God's curse on me for not executing enough her heretics. So you can see, <laughs> this woman was driven, right? She was driven because what she wanted more than anything was the Pope to accept her and her country for her husband to love her, for her to have children that would succeed her, and to go back to the purity of the Catholic rule. Um, and so sometimes God gives us, uh, obviously there's, God always gives justice, even when we can't see it. We might get very, um, very frustrated with our government officials who are godless people, and it looks like everything's going great. I mean, you look at people like Pelosi, who has had this wonderful career. She has gotten very rich off of people that keep voting for her for whatever reason, and her husband's super rich, and... Nothing seems to bad happen to her. She probably is going to get to retirement and be fine and live super well in one of the best climates in America where it's always like between 60 and 70 degrees all the time. And this is going to be her life. Is there any justice for the, for the kind of evil that this woman has done to the rest of the world? And we kind of think, where is the justice? Well, of course, there's going to be tons of justice. There's going to be an eternity of justice for her if she doesn't repent, right? But every once in a while, God allows us to see a glimpse of the justice that we don't always get to see, if I can put it that way. And I think with Mary 
after the murdering she had done of all these men and women, um, there was a glimpse that was visual to the rest of the world of the justice that was coming her way. In 1557, this was a few years after her false pregnancy, uh, it looked like she was getting pregnant again. And this time it looked, it looked real. Uh, her, uh, she was starting to swell just like you would expect someone with pregnancy to have, and, you, and she was, um, all the signs of pregnancy were absolutely there. And this was it. And the bells rang, everyone was excited um, that she was going to have a baby. Uh, what it really was, was something called dropsy, which is a, a medical condition that is a death sentence, especially back then, where you have soft tissue swelling because of, uh, and I don't understand all of it, but it kind of resembles cancer. And so, I mean, you can think of it this way, uh, as her belly started to swell, it was not with a child, it was with death. And the things, all the things she wanted, all the things she was looking for, uh, never came about, even with all her, her killing. One year later, after she thought she was pregnant, uh, she died from this disease. She was considered, and this is a quote from uh, uh, someone from, I can't remember where this was, uh, but she was considered the, the unhappiest of queens and wives and women. I want you to think about those three different aspects of her life. It wasn't that she was the most unhappy queen, but she had a good life as a wife. It wasn't just that she was unhappy as a queen and unhappy as a wife, she was unhappy as a woman. There was nothing that she took pleasure in that she thought she would. Uh, one historian wrote this. Her husband, whom she idolized, tired of living with her in a year or two and went back to Spain. The child she passionately longed for never came. The church and pope she sacrificed so much for disregarded her entreaties. And the people who had welcomed her and whom she really loved called her Bloody Mary, and taught the English nation to call her still to this day. So if you go, you know, I, and I don't know how things have changed since this was written, uh, this was written a few years ago, but um, even to this day, and the public, well, all the schools in England are public schools, but if you go to school in England, what they will teach you about Mary Tudor is that she's Bloody Mary even to this day. And so there is a... Satan, uh, like I said, he loves a covenant with people. He just doesn't keep any of his promises. And so as we... Uh, when, I, when I look at the English Reformation, it reminds me so much of the climate we live in today where uh, people, the common people, are more in tune with the political atmosphere than they are in tune with the theological atmosphere of their church. Um, and I, I think that the, the thing we can learn from this 
is that the thing that really um, turned the tables wasn't necessarily just one preacher that was well-known. Uh, Calvin was not responsible for the English Reformation. I mean, there's influences, obviously. But the real thing that turned the English Reformation were those who were willing to die for what they believed in. And all those deaths turned an entire nation to be one of the most powerful nations towards the Reformation, uh, towards Protestantism. And as you know, after Mary died, God had mercy on England. And um, through Elizabeth, who probably, I don't know what, if she was a Christian or not, but she certainly made Christianity possible in England. So, anyway, I hope that there is something we can learn from that as far as how we think in our, in our world, especially as, um, you know, and I want to I parse this very carefully with my last minute, is um, I think it's great taking stands politically, and that's fine, uh, and all that sort of thing. My, what I learned from this was that it took people to uh, desire Christ and see how Christ has affected others so that a nation would turn towards the Lord. Um, I don't think we're going to turn towards the Lord through being good Republicans. I think we're going to turn towards the Lord by loving the Lord Jesus Christ and through that loving each other, um, which will affect how we view things like politics. But if we had the energy for Jesus Christ, like we do over things that annoy us in the government, I think things might be different. So hope maybe that's something we can learn from the English Reformation. Um, I hope that was helpful to you. Uh, if you have any questions, let me know. Of course I went over time because I'm me. So let's uh, pray, and then we'll get going with the worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the way you have directed uh, your word and your people, even through times of persecution and difficulties. Lord, we pray that we would have the love for you that would be strong enough to be able to sacrifice the way those men did. We pray that we would love you enough to be able to demonstrate love for each other. Pray that our church would be known for our love for Christ and our love for each other, and that that kind of, of engagement would be attractive to others in the community. We pray that you would bless us as we come before you, Lord, uh, to worship you. Lord, humble our hearts, break our hearts, Lord, that we might listen to your word spoken through your servant. Lord, we pray for Andrew as he speaks your word to us that we would be humble before what he has to say today. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.